Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Patients as Partners U.S. Conference on the topic of engaging with communities to educate and enroll diverse populations. This discussion is led by Jan Nissen, Vice President of Patient Innovation and Engagement for Merck, and we'll discuss the complexities of diversity and what actions we can take to raise clinical trial awareness and enrollment that is reflective of the demographics of the populations. I hope you enjoy the podcast. My name is Kelly Franchetti. I am a nurse. I've been a nurse for 25 years. I am the global head of patient insights and engagement at ICON. I have been working to bring the patient voice to all aspects of drug development for uh, eight, nine, ten years now. Um, I started it because I am uh, the mother of a child with a rare disease who is 23, and I am the aunt of a child with a rare disease who is 17. So I've been doing this journey for a very long time as well as being a nurse. I'm Tara Hiley. Um, I am a clinical scientist and also part of Genentech Roche's product development patient insights group. And I, my passion is to synthesize the biochemistry, the science, and work with the clinical teams to convince them that this is critically important to do. I am a liaison to the various teams with our advocacy groups, and I am here to garner experience and education from all of you and have that reciprocated. So thank you all very much. Hi, my name is Caroline Donovan. I'm with uh, Lupus Therapeutics, which is an affiliate of Lupus Research Alliance. Um, I'm our manager of patient engagement. I'm in charge of a program that we're setting up, which is a peer support, peer education program for individuals um, who are for individuals with lupus um, to learn from other individuals with lupus who have been in a clinical trial. Um, I have worked in clinical trials um, in oncology before this and sort of saw firsthand who accessed clinical trials and who didn't access clinical trials. Um, and so then I went on to focus on social determinants of health, and now I'm here. Good morning, everyone. I'm Lisa Fitzpatrick. I'm an infectious diseases physician and medical epidemiologist. I'm listed as affiliated with the Community Wellness Collective, which is a nonprofit I started to focus on health literacy and movement for low-income people, but the company I'm starting now is called Grapevine Health, so you can follow us on Instagram for updates. You can also follow me on Twitter at AskDrFitz to get more information about what we're doing. Good morning, everyone. Hi, I'm Pat Rizal from Santa Fe. Um, it's my pleasure to be here today. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I head a global team of what we call patient network managers. Our role is to inform our clinical development. Um, we actually start that in the R side of R&D uh, with a team in research at asset identification and carry it all the way through to uh, lay summary reporting, ensuring that every single piece of uh, a patient's experience along a trial is informed by the patient and the people who participate. We also strive very hard around cl raising clinical trial literacy, and I'm proud to say with Syscript's amazing efforts that Aware for All event was one of the things we're really very proud of. Um, and we have a corporate social responsibility uh, with respect to diversity in clinical trials. Okay, I think we all know what the problem is, right? We 
if you look at the U.S. population uh, relative to the clinical trial participants. So Ken showed us those numbers, you know, on the first day of the meeting. So I'm going to start with the first question is, you know, can you give some examples of what your individual either organizations or companies have done to actually recruit for minority patients in clinical trials? Anybody can go ahead. I can, yeah. I can start. Yeah. So what Roche and Genentech, um, what we have done is it's a multi-pronged approach. And the first approach is what has been stated ever, you know, since the first meeting six years ago. We're fixing our own house. And so one of the things we're doing within our own house is really communicating and partnering with our clinical teams and also breaking down silos as much as possible. So one of those examples is what our group does. And we look at the protocols. We look at what's happening with our collaboration with Foundation Medicine to look at real world evidence, to look at the prevalence of disease, and then work with our clinical teams to design appropriate protocols, inclusion, exclusion criteria, no more copying and pasting from one protocol to the next. You know y'all done it. <laughs> um, we're really looking at what kind of materials we can provide um, for our physicians. What sites are we going to? How do we work with clinical teams in terms of feasibility? Are we going to the same physicians? Can those physicians um, work with us to connect with community centers, for example? So in a product development perspective, that's what we're doing internally. We are also working with our advocacy relations groups and we have external collaborations. We have a, an external steering committee that is made up of, I believe at this point, 16 key opinion leaders from um, the, the public sector, both academic and industrial. And we are getting their input into our programs and protocols. And then as a very specific example, we are part sponsor of Dr. Fabian Sanderball's um, uh, program in Washington, DC. It's WZDC. And he has a Telemundo pro program where he describes to um, Spanish-speaking communities um, what clinical trials are, what types of, of illnesses are there, and what kind of trials are out there. And he also goes to the local embassies and also to the local fairs to communicate that information. So those are some of the things that we do, and it all envelops back into the protocol and how we can communicate that to our clinical teams. Thank you. Um, I, I think I could probably speak more in general to, since we are obviously not, Icon is not a pharmaceutical company, we work with many other pharmaceutical companies and I can talk to some of the things that um, they're doing from a diversity perspective. We do a lot of one-on-one -on -one interviewing with patients. We go out there into the community for our, our, our various stakeholders to find out, you know, how do they want to get this clinical trial information? What are their thoughts around clinical trials? How are they getting, who are their trusted sources of information? I think that when you're speaking to diversity, um, one of the most important things you need to do is find out at that granular level, who are their trusted sources of information because oftentimes they're not your doctors. And I'm sorry if there's any doctors in the room, but oftentimes they're, they're not. And a lot of times, you know, you have to find ways to, how are you gonna get this out to them? What is the imagery that you're using when you're looking at a diverse clinical trial population? Make sure your imagery, imagery is correct. Make sure that you know, your lexicon is appropriate, your, your health literacy, all of those things. So that is a lot of the stuff that we are doing for other um, sponsors to go out there and test it out and do workshops with patients and workshops with advocates and talk to their caregivers and just find out 
what's going on out there before putting together all of the stuff that goes into the clinical trial. And of course, testing out your protocols, cutting and pasting. <laughs> Um, so one thing, or well, we're doing a few things, um, being that we work in lupus, obviously uh, diversity of clinical trials is critical for um, us. And so what I alluded to in my introduction, um, we are piloting a program, it's called Patient Advocates for Lupus Studies, and it's a peer support, peer education program. And um, as Kelly mentioned, you know, a lot of times the doctor is not the most trusted source. Um, I think that is always, that can be particularly true in uh, communities of color. And so in this program, um, we're setting it up. It's a pilot. We're doing the pilot phase first um, with, at five academic centers in uh, the United States that serve diverse communities. Um, and we actually just trained 11 individuals with lupus to serve as peer advocates, peer um, support, peer education for clinical, for early clinical trial education for other individuals with lupus. Um, and this program came to be because we heard from a lot of individuals with lupus, they wanted to speak to someone who has been through a clinical trial. And so these individuals will um, go through clinical trial education. We are setting it up so they can uh, conduct these, this education um, via video chat, the phone, or in person. Um, you know, really trying to make this a scalable model, um, you, a real-world model. Um, so we're allowing for a lot of sort of different, uh, different little changes from site to site uh, because no mo the model can't be the same at each site. Um, and so this is really, and all of the individuals who are working with us are, are all women of color who are from various backgrounds. We have people who have completed high school all the way to people who um, have master's degrees. Um, and they are a great, phenomenal group of people. So that's one thing we've done. And then, and that's a program that's being supported by a lot of different pharmaceutical companies um, as well as private donors. Um, so I think that's one thing, you know, it's a completely trial agnostic program. It's just focusing on introducing clinical trials and getting that clinical trial education early and awareness about clinical trials before a clinical trial might be an option. Um, and then we also are doing partnerships with people, um, organizations and people who are um, inter interested and have a, um, care about the health of the communities impacted by lupus. So we have a partnership with the National Minority Quality Forum for multicultural engagement partnership uh, that came together in 2017. We have a report coming out, um, I think this week actually, um, where we uh, lay out some some road, uh, kind of a roadmap of some steps that can actually be taken, um, you know, uh, addressing the fact that there are a lot of uh, systemic and larger issues that we can address. I'd like to respond to this with my epidemiologist hat on and my physician hat. Um, my, my introduction to this topic was when I was at the CDC starting a program called the Minority AIDS Research Initiative. And the purpose of that program was to support, provide support for junior investigators of color to conduct research. And one of those research studies was a mixed method study looking at why it's difficult to engage low-income black and minority people in studies. And the information we learned from that, I took into my, my clinical space. And what I heard from patients were things like, things I'm sure you've heard already, the, the distrust around trials, 
um, the confusion, the mysticism. So what we had to do to get people into studies was we had to educate them. This video that you showed, this should be on national TV. We really need to... This is exactly what it takes to get people to understand what clinical trials are because right now, people do not understand this, especially the people I work with. So what we had to do was take them by the hand, give them the information, and on a couple of occasions, I and some of my staff members went to NIH with them to show them these people want to help you. Most of our patients we sent to NIH didn't come back, and that's okay, but they had a really great experience, and they were able to come back and tell other people about the experience they had. So I think those are the kinds of things that we found very successful. But if there's any way to disseminate this video or videos like this, especially since everyone's consuming content on the phone um, and they want visuals. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't tell it any simpler than the video. So congratulations to whoever created the video. <laughs> yeah. So kudos to Syscript. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I also wanted to give a shout out to Langland, too, because they were very much a part of that collaboration. And thank you so much for that. Yeah, so actually, um, Lisa, right? What, what I've done, because we do partner with patient advocacy groups, um, even for our investigator sites who've seen this, because it is such a great tool. It is simply... It's simple. It, it, it just speaks volumes in a matter of three minutes. So um, we have disseminated that link. It's publicly available on YouTube. If there's a way that perhaps even patients and partners can make it available to everyone publicly, you can and use it. it, it it's meant to be, to be used as a tool to share uh, this knowledge. And if I can just say one other thing. Uh, there's a patient who loved being in the NIH study so much we called him and asked him if he would come back to the clinic and talk to another person who was thinking about being in the trial. And she went into the trial after speaking to him. So that's another mechanism, using a buddy system. And forgetting about all the, the barriers you think are there, asking patients to talk to each other, they want to do it if you ask them. And we have a similar um, um, scenario where there have been a number of studies where we have, within the clinical trial, have asked the patients um, directly, obviously anonymously, we were still blinded, what they thought of the clinical trial or what they thought of a certain procedure or a certain implant. And as one example in our ophthalmology um, therapeutic area, we actually took a number of the phase two clinical trial participant respondents and we hired actors, and the, the team developed this great video that was then presented at advisory boards and was then um, uh, disseminated in certain ways that, that, in all honesty, I'm not sure. I work in oncology, so you'll have to ask our ophthalmology experts um, to show to our, to our phase three potential trial patients so that they would understand, oh, this is what I'm going to potentially experience. This then can be disseminated in a number of different ways. Again, when we look at feasibility, what, again, going back to the diversity component, what is the prevalence of disease for a certain area? So what kind of communication do we need to give in the language and with the, the deliverable person um, that would be most receptive? 
one perspective. So um, this is extremely important, I think, for everyone that's in the industry. And so it probably takes um, a sort of an industry-wide approach to improving diversity in clinical trials. So we have, our researchers now have this as a uh, primary objective as they undertake any clinical trial and probably similar to others. We do try and use uh, epidemiology data to try and place the trials in, in, in places where we know that the, the community is there. But our actual engagement with the community is really just starting now. We've met with um, members of the community, so the black churches of, of, uh, in the United States um, and others. Um, and so I think that there's more that we have to do, more that we have to learn. And I think what Lisa mentioned is really important, which is um, sometimes they've worked with industry in the past, right? And maybe it didn't go really well. Um, and so there's the distrust issue that we have to overcome that I think is, is really important. Um, and how do we as an industry all come together to create more of this awareness and this education is I think what we're kind of all talking about here. So any other examples, and, and Lisa, anything that you've done in your community um, around the education that you can share? Because I know you do those Lisa on the street <laughs> videos, and you can catch these on YouTube. Um, but I, I think they're very, very effective in terms of the, the education. Thanks for the plug. Uh, <laughs> those videos are a beta test, but it's, it's actually going to be the bread and butter for Grapevine Health because as we've heard, people trust people they know. Um, it's, a, it's a tough one because we can't ever lead with this conversation. And I've done, I've done a lot of um, community education and conspiracy theories, this conversation around distrust, it always comes up. And I think the, the way to handle that is to give it air, let it breathe, let people talk about it, because they can't hear what you say unless you let that conversation happen organically. So that's what we do. We don't try to convince people they need to be in trials. We just listen to what they say and then try and give accurate information. But I have to tell you guys, physicians are... are, are um, I would say blamed a lot for not enrolling people in trials, but guess what? There's no one coming to talk to us about the trials that are available. So those of you in the room who have the resources and the ability to figure out how you bring sustainable um, information to the physician community, there's no way we can refer people into your trials if we don't know they exist. And the, uh, and the, the corollary to that is for the physicians who work in underserved communities, most of those places don't have the infrastructure for the clinical trials. The timelines are unrealistic. So those are some of the things that we talk about, um, not to patients or to community, but to each other, because we know, we know that these trials are there, but there's no way for us to know about them unless you tell us about them. Uh Related to the um, mistrust, and that's something that we, um, with the college program, are also, that was a huge part of the training um, that we just did, and, some, and a reason that we are um, 
having the pals speak to individuals um, as early as possible um, so that they're getting, you know, just awareness about clinical trials and not, as you said, told to be in a clinical trial um, from these pals. They're just, um, they fill out a survey sort of about what they might be interested in learning about clinical trials, and then it's the peer-to-peer um, support, it's the peer-to-peer -peer education, um, it's the individual who has been in a clinical trial at their site saying, this is what I experienced here. Um, I, you know, actually got to see the doctor every time, um, which, <laughs> you know, is what the pals have said to us. Um, and then another thing that we've done in terms of um, getting education and awareness out is actually from that uh, partnership with um, NMQF, we developed a turnkey uh, toolkit that is downloadable off of our website where ind individuals sort of in the community can take this. It's their slides, there's a presentation, um, and this was developed. Um, again, NMQF looked at this, worked with us on this to make sure that this was really, um, you know, relative and culturally relative. Um, the, down to the icons of the silhouettes that we have, um, there's different body types, there's different hair types. It's not just all, you know, a image of what a Caucasian woman looks like. Um, there are, it's a variety. And this is a toolkit that goes through sort of lupus awareness as well as introductions to clinical research. Um, and this is something that, you know, we can actually give to people and groups um, who we're working with. Um, and, you know, we're working with Black Nurses Rock. This is something that they can download and use. Um, so it's really about spreading that word and getting that word out. Um, you know, one person talks to one person, that person talks to another person. Um, and I think that's really how it goes within the community. Um, sorry, I just wanted to add something. And I completely agree with you about the doctors. And a lot of times, you know, they get blamed for not enrolling. I just want to, um, I might be the bad person up here, but we've been doing multiple workshops with incredibly diverse populations for more than a few years now where we bring them all together. And something that we are hearing a lot of that I think the industry needs to be aware of and maybe take a step back and see if there's a little bit of education out there is the unconscious bias mm -hmm. of the physicians when some of these diverse populations hear about a clinical trial, in many, many instances in different therapeutic areas, you're searching that out. You're out there talking to other people in your therapeutic area and they're saying, there's a clinical trial for this. There's this medication that's available in Germany for that. These, in these types of communities, that's where they're getting their information. They're then bringing it to their doctor. We've not just heard this in one particular therapeutic area, we've heard it kind of across the board over the past few years, that there is a bit of an unconscious bias where the doctors, when they bring it to them, are saying, I don't know if that's really for you, or I'm not sure, mm -hmm. and they're taking it. Maybe it isn't for them from a therapeutic perspective. However, they're taking it as it's, it's because of my background, it's because of who I am. They don't think I can follow through with you know, the schedule or different things like that. So I do think it's something to also take into consideration and make sure that all of your investigators are, you know, fully prepared and can recognize unconscious bias when it comes up. I think this is an excellent point. I absolutely believe it's true and it happens. The challenge is a lot of people, especially low-income people, we don't, we don't have to get into a discussion about how complicated life can be if you're poor. 
And I've had this conversation with investigators because they show you the commitment that's required. And when your life is really chaotic, you don't know where you're going to be one day to the next. It's really difficult. So I think both things are true when you're, when you're considering why this is not happening. And I think this is where we as an industry um, can be proactive and very conscious about communicating the services that we can provide for every single clinical study that we run. That way we have that communication with physicians to say we are what we can provide transportation. We will provide um, um, you know, uh, funds for lost work, child care, um, things along those lines. We have to be better at communicating that and then putting that vote, that cost into action. Yeah. And I'll also invite the audience if you you know like to contribute as well, uh, please come up to the microphone if you have examples. Um, that you want to share. Uh, I think we're all trying to learn um, around how to do better in this area. So I'll pause there. So please go ahead. Well, the, the very last statement about industry and being able to provide resources and do better, maybe you can, but for the most part, you haven't yet. And from the patient perspective, this is one of the biggest barriers to participation because I think everything all of you are doing is wonderful as far as getting information out, but you need to make absolutely certain that once somebody signs on for a clinical trial that it's sustainable. And when you add in things like transportation, more visits, parking, the fact that generally only the drug is free, everything else is billed to insurance, it's quite a burden. And if you have a life that is full of burdens already, then you're going to need additional supportive services. Uh, so thank you. That's a great comment. Um, so our, we have a bioethics committee within our organization, and they tasked us with developing a position paper on exactly how we're going to address these issues. So um, a working group was formed. We had our first meeting in February, and it was across all stakeholders and global. And we looked at everything from, you know, how do we? It, so, right, we can say, okay, there's race, ethnicity, there's gender, there's age, right? But then you go, there's socioeconomic status. There's, you know, where you live, exactly. So many things that need to be considered. Um, to your point, yes, we have to do better. I can say by virtue of the fact that we are delving into this as an organization because we have to be ahead, meaning that I think someone, I think Elise on the previous speaker just mentioned that we know by 2050 the uh, uh, representation and population, particularly in the U.S., is, is the Caucasian is going to be the minority. So we're already looking forward about how are we going to prepare to ensure that we have the right representation, that we identify the barriers, and then come up with ways to mitigate those barriers. I had, thank you for your comment. I had a couple things to say, and I forgot one, but the, the, the one I remember is my father was diagnosed with stage um, 4 lung cancer last year, and he's in an immunotherapy trial right now. 
The clinical team is outstanding. The doctor speaks in plain language. I have so much respect for them. But the rest of the healthcare system is just messed up. He's having a really bad experience. So if there's any way to influence, there's a continuum of care for people, and it can't just be about what happens when the clinician is talking to the patient and administering the, the, the treatment. He, a good example is yesterday I wanted to Skype into his visit. And I told him, I called him before, and I said, give the phone to, I mean, he's 78, give the phone to whoever does your vital signs and ask them to connect your phone to the Wi-Fi, to the Internet. So he calls me. An hour later, he's, he's already done with the visit. He's done with the, the chemo. And he says, I'm really sorry. I know you wanted to be on the visit. He knows how important it is to me. And he felt he'd let me down. I said, well, what happened? He said, I tried to get her to do it. I gave her the phone. And she said, I don't have time for that. We're too busy. And he said, and I know what she means because there must be 100 people in here. It's crazy. So the experience is so much more than just the treatment. And I just wanted to share that story because I think a lot of you can help improve the experience for patients. Another quick anecdote, um, I think that it's also um, absolutely there's all those barriers and um, I think there are some resources out there. Um, I think one thing that, you know, as an advocacy organization that we're trying to do is also um, make the individuals, the potential individuals more comfortable asking about them. Um, and this always reminds me of when I was in phase one um, oncology research, an individual, a 28-year-old who always missed his appointments. He was on an immunotherapy trial for multiple myeloma. It was working. Things were going great. Um, but he always got early morning appointments and was always three hours late, um, and he was going to be taken off as noncompliant. Um, then finally, the nurse sat down and was like, why are, don't, like, this is working. Why are you not following being compliant? And he's like, I have to take my niece to school every morning, and I always have 7.30 a.m. appointments. It had never occurred to him that he could ask for later appointments. When that happened, we automatically, we set a clock, uh, we, set a, we set down the 12 p.m. appointment for him. So then he was compliant and on time every day. You know, those little things where just taking the time to figure out what's happening. Um, you can ask, making, and then, so that's, I think, a really critical part as well. Hi, thank you guys so much. I think this is such a inspiring conversation. I'm having goosebumps because this is something that I'm also very passionate about. But being on the other side, understanding, coming from a pharmaceutical side, but being from the other side, you know, previously working as a research coordinator, what I thought that I was lacking is the pharmaceutical companies actually having training on cultural sensitivity and how to understand the community. Because I think once you head up a site, once you understand that that site is equipped enough, right, to carry out this research study, you also have to prepare your team to understand how to engage with patients. Because I think many of you have said it before, the trust is lacking. Your community coordinator also should, and you know, please do not take this the wrong way, look like you. Because there's a connection there that I think, you know, there's because of this distrust and because, you know, it's a clinical trial. That, um, kudos to you guys because that is how I would start off uh, um, an informational session with a patient saying, 
Tylenol is on the shelf because someone went through a clinical study or clinical trial. But again, you, you know, we, we needed at the time more resources to understand populations. And I think if there's a consorted effort with the site and also with, you know, whomever is, you know, um, preparing the site to do this study, what pharmaceutical company, there has to be a collaborative effort to bring forth that cultural sensitivity, resources for coordinators to understand their community. And it's, it's to me, that's one of the things that, you know, was missing. So I just wanted to point that out. Anyone can. Yeah, I totally <laughs> that, agree. I, I was going to say that's an excellent point as well. And, and one of the things that, that we're doing with that is, again, through Foundation Medicine, looking at real-world evidence, we also have <coughs> geographical maps on where that real-world evidence takes us from a feasibility perspective. And that's a key point because it's from the very beginning when we have a synopsis, when we have a clinical development plan, where are we going with that information? When we're in the laboratory and we have targets, where are we going with that information? What, what are the patients telling us? And then how can we then reach out to various sites? And wherever those sites are, if there is a need for um, equipment, training, things like that, how do, we, how do we as a collective here, not just one pharmaceutical company on an island, but working with advocacy groups, working with um, SCRS, working with City, working with Transcelerate, how do we get this information out to sites and it's just an excellent point and something that we're working on but again you know it's it's a road and I, I think to your point um, it, I think pharma it historically inside of pharma is very siloed off right and so are each pharmaceutical company you're all very siloed off nobody really shares a whole lot of what's going on but yet a lot of you work in these same areas and when you're getting these insights into these patient populations I, I would love to see that the sharing of information when you're talking about, you know, triple negative breast cancer, giving all of that information to each other, anyone else that's working in that because you've done some of this research, you know what's going on with these patient populations and you can help educate the doctors, you can help educate advocacy, you can help like kind of bring it all together and I think we could do that from a, I would love to see it happen from a therapeutic level. I know. Hi, um, this is really excellent. I'm Cindy and I am a patient advocate, but I'm gonna speak from some history I have as a patient advocate where I led really large breast cancer support organizations. And I can tell you everything everybody said is totally true, but the thing that's missing here, and it kind of came up a little bit, you build trust through relationships as well as sustainability. So I personally have with my groups, representing my groups, have had amazing relationships to support people and communities to recruit them their trials. The issue is it's not sustainable. So once your trial enrolls, you go away. I'm still in the community. I still have to have the volunteers on the ground to talk to people in the waiting rooms to help enroll them. So that's the piece that's kind of missing is you can't build trust without relationships, and you need to think more beyond like the, it's not a check the box, but it's not just a process. And I think that's one of the other things all of us really got right was building the relationship. I just, yeah, so that's, that's really great. And in uh, just a, a real life experience, um, we have a relationship in place with Susan G. Komen, North Jersey. Uh, chapter and they have what they call patient navigators in place in the field. You probably are all familiar with them already. Um, and so one of the things that we're doing as part of this partnership is supporting clinical trial 
education, awareness with their patient navigators because to that point, we actually did two advisory panels with women, triple negative breast cancer. Okay, they all spoke English, but there were three women who, who lived in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is a very urban, diverse area. They wanted to participate. So what did we do? We held a, a dedicated session with these three women. I had a patient navigator translate everything for us back and forth so, because it was important for these women to be included. So I think that there are some ways where we can look at building in sustainability. I know we're out of time, and I would love to hear the rest of the questions if possible, but I remembered what I wanted to say. <laughs> uh, it was her question. My, fa my father oh, said Oh, yield my time. <laughs> um, my father's a really funny guy, and he, um, I called him and I said, I call the American Cancer Society, and they have a program with Lyft. I had to explain what that was. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, really? It's such a shame that people bend over backwards to help you only when you're dying of cancer. And so, the, you know, the, the point to me was, why is that? Why can't we, we have so many resources, why can't we just willingly give all this you know, support to people before they're actually facing yeah. something so tragic. So it was a perfect setup. Um, <laughs> but building off of what Cindy said and what Lisa said, I'd like to hear, because Lisa's group is clearly, we're educating people out there. But the pharma companies have a stake. It's a therapeutic area product, a specific program that's going on. How general are you spreading this education and how are you doing that? Yeah. <laughs> so that that video that you saw, that was something that we worked with as a means of we this pop-up pharmacy was in Newark, New Jersey. It it and it was a prelude to an event. The pop-up pharmacy was meant to bring people in and then what we shared with them is the fact that there was going to be an event on Thursday where people were coming, we were giving them a, a box meal. We had investigators from Harlem um, we had patients who had been in a clinical trial before, so it was all part of a broader initiative. That was just one output of it. We've also developed a totally non-branded uh, website for clinical trial literacy. It's, it's in terms that are easy to understand, and there's nothing about a Sanofi product on there or a Sanofi trial. So I think we're you know, heading in the direction where we've got this top of, top of mind. And very similar from our perspective as well, a patient portal system. Um, and again, just thinking about what we're doing as a collaborative. You know, for example, Pfizer has a patient portal system for clinical trial participants as an alumni type thing. Genentech Roche is developing a patient portal system. We have a phenomenal advocacy relation organization, both in the U.S. and worldwide. We are not U.S. centric when we're talking about diversity. We're very experienced in Asia PAC, for example, and we have um, wonderful opportunities to collaborate there because a lot of those organizations aren't necessarily depending on the therapeutic area well organized and so we have great affiliates out in the field who work and disseminate that information but again always room for improvement so please join me in thanking our panel here and thank you for all the audience participation we hope you enjoyed the discussion for more information visit theconferenceforum.org Thanks for listening.